Nobody knows New Jersey mobsters better than master storyteller Terrence Winter. Terrence was a writer and executive producer for HBO's The Sopranos, and he's creator, showrunner, and head writer for HBO's Boardwalk Empire. We had an opportunity to speak with Terrence over the phone about NYU and his journey into show business. Can you begin by talking a little bit about your NYU experience? Sure. I uh, I went to NYU between 1980 and 84. Uh, I... I uh, basically studied journalism and political science. The The whole idea of, of uh, becoming a screenwriter didn't really occur to me until a little later in my life. And, uh, you know, mainly, you know, it was more out of ignorance than anything else. You know, I, I truly didn't even realize that NYU taught courses in film and television, which, it's, you know, sounds ludicrous by today's standards. But, you know, back in the early 80s, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn in a fairly blue-collar working-class environment, and the idea of working in the TV and film industry was something that was so alien to me. I, I, it didn't even occur to me to, you know, to, to pursue that or even think about that in terms of a job. I mean, most people I knew worked in offices or cops or firemen, things like that, so this wasn't even on my radar as something to do. So when I enrolled in college, I just took a more, you know, liberal arts approach to things. But I did like writing, and I did gravitate to journalism uh, initially, and actually uh, I had a very influential teacher there, a guy named Jerry Schwartz, who was an editor, and I believe still is, for the Associated Press. And I think I learned more about writing in his one course, uh, it was a, about feature article writing, uh, in, in three months, and I've learned, you know, pretty much all through high school and college thereafter. It was just really, for the first time, it sort of clicked for me. Um, you know, again, this sounds very simplistic, but, you know, just things like, you know, just choosing one word to replace four other words or just, just telling a story succinctly, concisely, just getting to the point and, you know, just, just the, the nuances of language. And just, it was really magic. It was probably, you know, a 12 to 16 week period at NYU, but it really changed everything in terms of how I approached writing. And, and he actually put the bug in my head about becoming a writer uh, in the broader sense. You know, he was pushing for me to go toward journalism, um, even though that wasn't, you know, directly related to film and TV. It sort of was the first professional person that said, I think you can do this for a living, or I think you can write for a living. And planting that seed uh, was very important because years later, after I practiced law for a couple of years and was miserable at that, the idea of being a writer uh, sort of came back in a big way, and, and Jerry Schwartz's influence and, and encouragement really helped me quite a bit. I just love the story of how you broke into show business. Can you tell that story to our listeners? Yeah, it, uh, I um, I broke into show business uh, as a very circuitous route, I guess, uh, sort of, you know, made my own way. I moved to L.A. in 1990 uh, when I was almost 30 years old. I graduated from NYU, uh, ended up going on to St. John's Law School at night, uh, so that took four years, practiced for a couple of years. So it wasn't until I was in my later 20s that I realized what I really wanted to do was pursue film and TV writing. So I moved to L.A. I didn't know anybody. Um, nor had I ever been west of Chicago, so I just sort of arrived in the city, got an apartment or sharing an apartment, uh, got a day job to pay my bills, and then just started writing spec scripts, which are essentially sample scripts of existing TV shows. Originally, I thought I wanted to you know, try to break into the sitcom world, which felt a little more manageable to me because the scripts were only 30-minute teleplays as opposed to an hour or, or a movie, which was just so daunting. You know, I couldn't imagine writing something that big. But I started writing sitcom specs, and, um, you know, the people I showed them to, everybody was very encouraging. And, you know, of course, what, you know, the, the advice is, well, you've got to get an agent. And, you know, the catch-22 in Hollywood is that you can't get an agent without a job, and you can't get a job without an agent. So 
I said, well, how does anybody do this? And that's that's the $64,000 question. Nobody really knows. And there is no set career path for writers or actors or directors. You sort of kind of have to make your own way. You know, I always say if somebody said, well, I want to be a dentist, what do I do? I could oh, well, okay, well, you go to dental school, and then you intern somewhere, and you get your license, and then you're a dentist. Writing, acting, you know, you can go to school and study and get a degree, but it doesn't really – it's not like you take your certificate and show up on the you know, job line and get hired. You've got to now figure out, okay, how do I break in? And that was the frustrating thing. You know, people, again, re- read my work, liked it, but you know, I, I try to approach uh, existing TV shows or studios, and again, without representation, nobody will really read your work. So I just started cold calling agencies. You know, I got the book of the Hollywood agency directory and just started at the A's and just got people on the phone and pitched them. Uh, said, you know, I'm from New York. I have some scripts. Will you read them? And I'd send my scripts in, and a couple of weeks later, I'd get them. You know, I'd, I'd call back. They wouldn't remember who I was, and I'd tell. Oh, I sent you the scripts. Oh, you know, I got a hundred scripts a, a day. You know, so it's just this unbelievably daunting series of, of rejections and people not focusing and you know again the frustration level is really uh you know goes through the roof because i think early on in your career perseverance and talent are equally important you know if you don't if you're not tenacious you don't get out there no one's ever going to ring your bell and ask to read your script so I, it was really frustrating for me because at that point i felt like everything i ever wanted to achieve in life i was somehow managed to figure out how to get it and this was something i really wanted and i could not break in. I could not get an agent. And just through happenstance, I went down to the Writers Guild, and they have a list of agents who will accept unsolicited scripts from new clients. These are generally new agencies or young agents trying to get a client roster together. And just you know, by sheer luck, one of the names on the list was a guy I went to law school with. So I called him up and I said, well, are you an agent now? What are you doing? I'm, I'm in Los Angeles. I'm trying to be a screenwriter. And he said, well, no, I'm not an agent really. I'm a, I'm a real estate attorney. Uh, and I had a client who wrote a book on real estate and I used the fee to get bonded as an agent. Uh, but I don't really know anything about it. And I said, well, I don't either, but, I, but guess what? You're my agent. <laughs> so now at least I had a real agent, You know, at least somebody on the books who was licensed as an agent. I said, I'm going to Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to create a phony agency under your name. I'm going to pay for letterhead. I'm going to get a mailbox, et cetera, sort of address. I'm going to get a voicemail system. I'll pay for everything. I'll submit my work under your letterhead. And if I sell anything, I'll you know give you 10% like a real agent. So he said, all right, great. So I, in you know West Hollywood in Los Angeles, I got a mailbox address. I set up the letterhead. I took a day off from work. I photocopied all my scripts. And I... Um, I think I hit like 26 separate sitcom offices in one day. I just drove all over Los Angeles to every studio lot. This was back in the days when you could do this before the security uh, changed. And you, you know, just pull in and I'd say, "Yeah, hi, I'm the agency. I'm a messenger from an agency. I need to drop off these scripts." And the guard would just wave you in, and you'd go and drop things off. So, um, you know, I just really papered the town with my sitcom spec scripts. And uh, a couple of weeks went by, and I got a phone call from a woman named Winifred Hervey Stallworth, who was the executive producer of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And it was a Friday afternoon, and she left a message on the voicemail and said, yeah, hi, I'm uh, calling uh, about Terry Winter, your client, and I think, you know, we read his scripts, we might want to have him in to pitch some ideas. So, you know, I was really excited, and again, this is 4 o'clock in the afternoon in L.A., so I called my friend, the agent in New York, and of course he's already gone for the weekend because it's seven o'clock in New York. So I thought, ah, shit, I have to wait now till Monday to have him call back. And then it occurred to me, you know, he doesn't really know anything about being an agent. So 
why should I wait till Monday? I can just call and say I'm him and then just cut out the middleman. So I didn't know anything about being an agent either or, or what an agent would say or do, but I figured, let me just wing this. So I called her up and I said, yeah, hi, I'm Terry Winter's agent. And we had a really nice chat. And part of it was she said, you know, I, I, you know I've read his Seinfeld spec and his cheer spec, and you know, I thought they were really strong. But she said, you know, The Fresh Prince is, is sort of a teenage-oriented show. You should, you know, does he have another spec that's kind of geared toward teenagers? I said, yeah, you know, as a matter of fact, he just wrote a great uh, Wonder Years spec, um, which wasn't true. She had had everything I had written at that point, but I, I lied and said I had a Wonder Years spec. And she said, oh, that's perfect. Yeah, can you get me that? And I said, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, it's Friday. I said, I think Terry's away for the weekend. Um, you know, maybe I can get it to you by, like, Tuesday. She said, yeah, yeah, Tuesday's fine. That'll be great. So from Friday night until Tuesday, I had to crank out a Wonder Years spec episode and just, you know, did not get up from my chair for the whole weekend, finished typing it. Tuesday afternoon, I threw the baseball hat back on. I posed as the the messenger again, showed up at Fresh Prince, threw my script in the door. Now I had to make sure nobody saw me because I was like the, the agent, the client, the, the messenger. I was, you know, everybody. And um, a few more days went by. They called me in, and uh, they had me pitch an idea, and that became um, – that became my first break, and that led to, you know, meeting some producers who ultimately hired me. And then, um, you know, a few years, a few months later, I got into a program that the Warner Brothers uh, studio runs called the Warner Brothers Sitcom Writers Workshop, which is a really a godsend. It's one of the few programs that exists for uh, for new writers to try to break into the business. And I was, I was lucky enough to get into that. <laughs> That's such a wonderful story. It was, uh, yeah, it was, it was fun going through it. I'm glad it has a happy ending. Can you explain your role on Boardwalk Empire as creator, showrunner, and writer? Sure. Well, I am I am the showrunner, which basically means what it sounds like. I run the show. So I am um, also the guy who created the show. Often, you know, sometimes those those things are not don't go hand in hand. You can have someone who creates a show and then turns it over to somebody to run it. I actually wore both hats. I, um, you know, a few years ago when I finished up my run on The Sopranos, uh, HBO had given me a, a nonfiction book called Boardwalk Empire, which is essentially the history of Atlantic City. And they said, why don't you read this and see if you think there's a TV series in there somewhere. Uh, and oh, by the way, Martin Scorsese is attached to this. So um, I said, I guarantee you there's a TV series in there. That being the case, you know, with you know, Martin Scorsese's really one of the reasons I got into this business, if not the main reason. So this was my opportunity. I remember coming home and saying to my wife, I just, I've just been handed a TV series. If I figure this out, the fact that Martin Scorsese is involved, you know, well, this is a go project, so I just have to not screw this up. So I read the book, and the area I focused on was the 1920s and the Prohibition era, and there was a guy named Nucky Johnson, who we later fictionalized as Nucky Thompson on the show, who ran Atlantic City, and he was essentially equal parts politician and gangster. And when Prohibition came in, he, you know, he started to veer much more toward the gangster side because the money to be made from uh, importing illegal alcohol was just, just too good to pass up. So um, I pitched HBO on that. I pitched uh, Marty on that. Uh, they both liked it. I wrote the script, and we were off to the races. We got an order, and now it was a question of then assembling the team, um, my writing staff and a crew and other producers. And uh, I was lucky enough to work with Tim Van Patten, uh, who's uh, an incredibly talented director and producer uh, for many years on Sopranos. And Tim joined us as well as uh, an exec, exec producer. And uh, we just assembled the team. A lot of people we worked with uh, on The Sopranos, writers I've worked with in the past. And uh, we started uh, going. So I, I supervised the writer's room. You know, Most of my days spent uh, with the writers, getting the stories together and getting that launched. And then Tim, for the most part, 
uh, supervises the actual production of the show, although I'm involved in everything and I essentially sign off on everything. So I basically give my my sign off to every aspect of producing the show creatively, uh, the editing, the post-production, costumes, locations, props, stunts, everything gets run by me in a series of meetings and uh, and then, of course, you know, as I said, supervising all the writing of the scripts. And this will go on, you know, one episode at a time for the entire year. And, uh, you know, we're currently shooting episode, about to start shooting episode four of season three. The Boardwalk Empire set plays such a large role in the show as though it's another character. Uh, one of my favorite things about the set is the baby incubator exhibit. Yes. Can you tell us something you learned about the history of Atlantic City that surprised you or that you found most fascinating? Uh, I, it was it was surprising, but then it made perfect sense that Atlantic City essentially started uh, as a, as a scam. It was a uh, a, a mosquito infested swamp that was one of the most unhealthful places on the East Coast. Apparently, almost uninhabitable. The mosquitoes were so thick that people would go down there with horses, and the horse flies would attack them, and the poor horses would be so tormented with these bugs that they would jump into the ocean uh, to get away from them. And the man who started this and bought this area was a guy named Jonathan Pitney, who then advertised Atlantic City as a destination uh, for people looking for like restorative and health, like a health resort. So like right at right from the beginning, it was absolutely founded on a lie and a scam and just sort of a way to get people down there to get their money. Uh, the poor saps who were the early people who visited Atlantic City in the 1840s were found out pretty quickly that this was not a place to recover from anything. You were just essentially tormented with bugs and mosquitoes. And it was really a horrible place. It wasn't until uh, they figured out how to drain the swamps uh, toward the end of the 19th century that it became habitable and then an actual beach resort and then once they figured that out once the railroad came in atlantic city boomed within a couple of years there were dozens and dozens of hotels and then it became accessible to probably a million people throughout the east coast who could then you know in a day trip take their family to the beach which was up until that point something most people never experienced so you know the thing we take for granted is you know a trip to the beach you know 150 years ago was just you know you might live on the east coast your entire life and never see the beach so, but here you know now suddenly you know this this thing came and you know it became a place where you know your average working family could go for a holiday and you know live like kings for a couple of days and see all kinds of entertainment and just you know everything from you know highbrow entertainment to lowbrow. I mean, the incubator exhibit actually started as a, you know, it was a legitimate medical technology that um, couldn't be sold to hospitals initially, but they uh, ended up selling it, selling tickets on the boardwalk and, you know, anything and everything you wanted to eat, every, you know, you get pushed in a rolling chair, um, everything you wanted to buy, whether illegal or legal, it was all there in Atlantic City and, uh, you know, it's just a pretty incredible place. Boardwalk Empire takes place during the Prohibition era. If you could go back in time and experience a day living during a certain period, when would it be and why? Well, I, I, it's funny. I used to ask myself that question even before Boardwalk Empire, but it was always the 1920s. I mean, it seemed like, you know, that that was a time when everything kind of seemed like it worked here. You know, it was pre pre-Prohibition uh, or, or during Prohibition. I'm sorry, pre-Depression is what I meant to say. Uh, you know, America was just full of promise, you know, it was the dawn of the modern age, it was, you know, very accessible, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, it's almost 100 years ago, but you can feel in a lot of ways that you're still 
um, in the modern era. I mean, that's why I think the show is very accessible to people. Um, you know, people talked on telephones, they went to the movies, they traveled by train, and in some cases airplane. They dressed like we dressed. They, you know, did a lot of the same things, you know. Uh, and, you know, the alcohol business, uh, the illegal alcohol trade is very similar to the drug business, you know, the illegal drug trade now. And, you know, there's just a lot of similarities there. So it's sort of a way of, like, visiting a different world, but yet still close enough that it feels like today. You know, I'm, I'm uh, very interested in New York history as well, and you know, I just uh, be fascinated to just take a trip through New York and recognize it in a lot of ways and then not recognize it in others. And I think 19, the 1920s is, the t- is a great time to do that, where it still feels enough like the city today that you'd, you'd feel at home, and yet it's still everything is just completely, completely different. You've had much success collaborating with other fellow arts and science alumni namely David Chase and Martin Scorsese. And I hear you're working on another project. Could you tell us about it? Uh, yeah, I'm working on a, on a few projects. Uh, one is a another TV series um, actually set in and around the uh, NYU area. Um, it's New York City circa 1973, and it chronicles uh, a uh, you know the exploits of a record man, an A&R executive, uh, right at the time when punk, hip-hop, and disco sort of uh, emerged. So right around 1973, so a lot of the action takes place, uh, you know, in and around, you know, CBGB's, uh, you know, uh, the Mercer Arts Center, which was uh, one of the places where the New York Dolls uh, used to perform in 73. Um, You know, one of the first, what we would recognize as the modern disco actually happened right around NYU as well, so a lot of really fun stuff, and, uh, you know, it's a world that I'm really, really interested in and really looking forward to bringing to life on TV, and nowhere to, nowhere better to do it than HBO, and no one better to do it with than Martin Scorsese and, and Mick Jagger, who's also one of the other producers. <laughs> That's very cool. Finally, I'd like to ask you what advice you would give to someone looking to go into show business. Um, you know, be prepared to, you know, work your ass off and get rejected, but don't give up. I mean, it is, it, as I said earlier uh, in the conversation, it's, it's, it, there's no clear set career path uh, for this business. So if you want to do it, I mean, you've got to really dig in and, and do the work. I mean, as I said, initially in your career, you know, being tenacious is equally important as being talented, you know, because no one is going to open their door and, you know, just let you in. you got to really fight for it. I always make the analogy that, you know, working, you know, on the staff of a TV series, for example, is, is about as hard uh, to get a position as hard to get as playing professional baseball. I mean, that's how few television shows there are. That's how few slots there are for, for people to do it. And, um, you know, that's how hard you have to work to sort of distinguish yourself. And, uh, you know, everybody wants to be in this business. And, um, you know, if you're not prepared to really dedicate yourself to it fully, uh, you're cutting your chances down that much more. Well, Terry, thanks so much for talking to us today. Yeah, it was absolutely my pleasure. Really, uh, really enjoyed talking to you. Boardwalk Empire's third season will premiere this fall. For more information, visit www.hbo.com.